We're going to go to Esther. Um, we've been studying, uh, started our study last week, so let's get back to it. One, two. Uh, a lot of you I know are excited about the book of Esther. Uh, it is an Old Testament book that uh, maybe doesn't get preached about a lot, but uh, we're going to go to the book of Esther. If you don't know where it is, go to the middle of the Bible, Psalms, that big book. Go back before that book is the book of Job, and before that is the book of Esther. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the resource room. You're welcome to them. They're free. Um, but we're also going to put the verses up here as we go through. So the book of Esther, we're going to do chapter 2, or most of chapter 2, today. We haven't heard the name Esther yet, and we're going to hear it today. Um, and and if, you're, uh, if your family uh, has included little girls in it at all, then uh, you probably have had some time playing uh, a game that we call princess. Anybody ever had some princess time with the little ones? Lots of glitter, you know, dress up, uh, crowns, uh, do my hair, do my makeup, all that. Uh, I had two little ones, uh, and we played a lot of princess. Um, truth be told, we still pray, play some princess at our house <laughs> every now and then. Um, we're going to try to go to Disney this year, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a princess explosion when, when we get there. So um, what is it about that idea that just grabs the heart of, of, of little girls uh, seemingly universally? I know there are some that, that have other things, but it's seemingly like this, this, this broad sweeping thing, this dream inside of us. Um, and and it, it brings out like these, these ideas of, the, of, of beauty and, and, and wonderful and, and future that, that's just great and fantastic. And the, I guess the story that we look at in, in the book of Esther kind of has that as a basis for it, this idea of what would it mean to become royalty? What would it mean to, to, to step out of your normal life and become royalty? Um, I went to school in, in Florida for college, uh, met my wife there. And so we went to, to school about, I would say about 10, 15 minutes from um, the Gulf of Mexico. Beautiful beaches, like unbelievable, like what we have here is not exactly a beach compared to what they have in, in, in Florida. It, I mean, white sand like you couldn't believe. You can look down in the water and see see down in the water, like your feet and stuff. It's really wild. Like you can see right through it. It's like water. So um, warm and, and, and beautiful. I think when it got around Christmas time, it would get down every now and then to like, you know, 45 or 50, and we'd put on our winter coats and stuff. And so whenever I tell people that I went to college in Florida, usually what comes back to me is something along the lines of, wow, that must have been nice, right? Oh, you were really close to the beach. Oh, that, that must have been really nice. And I take that for what it's worth, but in my head, I go, you have no idea. Because where I went to college in Florida if I told you some of the stories about what we experienced in the college I went to in Florida, you would be flabbergasted. You would be blown away. It was, it was a very structured school. It was so structured that I, this sounds weird, but this is the truth. In college, if you missed a class, you got demerits. You got a lot of demerits. You got like 25 demerits. It only took 150 for them to kick you out of the school. So if you missed a class in college, you got 25 demerits. Uh, we had assigned dinner tables, and you had to dress up. I had to wear a jacket and a tie to dinner every night, and I had to be at my dinner table on time, or I got demerits. And if I missed dinner, I got 25 demerits. You have no idea. See, now, what I don't do, when people say, oh, that must have been nice, I, I, I don't go, well, let me tell you. 
I just go, yeah, 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 it was. It was really, really nice. And we went to the beach, and we enjoyed ourselves, and we had a great time in college. It was some, some great years of my life. But what I'm saying is, what you think you know when I tell you I went to school in Florida, and what actually it was, are two different things, Right? And that's the reality for a lot of stuff in our life. In our quest to connect to people, to communicate to people, we try to understand one another. So when someone tells us something, we get a picture in our head of what we think that is. But don't you know, don't you realize, don't you, haven't you bumped into this? Our understanding, our ability to have that picture be right is so limited. Right? Isn't it? You think you know what someone is saying or what someone experiences or what someone is going through, but unless you're in it, it's, it's possible that you're off base, maybe by a lot. In the best case, this misunderstanding is just, you know, oh, I didn't quite understand what you said. But when it really takes hold, when we project what we think someone else is or does or thinks or feels, when we really get down into that like arrogance of humanity that we all have, it starts to get into prejudice. It starts to get into bitterness. It starts to get into like knowing someone's heart and condemning them from over here. Or it starts to get into things like envying and, and wishing that I had their life and talking about how it's not fair that they have that because I... You know what I mean? When we get down to it, we project what we think we know on someone else, but we don't ever acknowledge how little we actually know. Have you ever been the target of that? When someone says, man, I wish I had your life. I wish I had your problems. Isn't that kind of insulting? Because they don't know what you go through. They don't know what you've gone through to get to here. And they don't know what's coming for you, but they act like they do. Right? Right? And so we do that a lot of times. We do look into something and we think, well, that must be really wonderful. That must be really amazing. It's kind of like that princess idea. What would it be like to suddenly become royalty? Maybe it's not exactly the same as what you're thinking. We do the same thing sometimes with Bible stories. We read a Bible story. We just went through the Christmas season and we have pictures of nativities and Mary and maybe you think you know what that was like. But have you ever considered what it was like to be like, a 14-year-old girl, unmarried, who was pregnant? You know? Have you ever considered what that does to you in your culture, in your family, in your uh, neighborhood? Maybe it's not exactly what we think, you know? We have a a beautiful picture, and we celebrate it, and, and it was a wonderful thing, but maybe the experience was a little different than what we think. And so sometimes, as we read the Bible, we don't give it reality. We don't look at it like what we know real life is like. But I want to challenge you today, let's look a little bit deeper. And as you read the Bible, look a little bit deeper. Notice details that are included in the story and why they are there. And I hope that coming out of this, here's a couple things I hope we can do. Number one, I hope we can remember to check ourselves when our eyes see someone else's life or situation and decide that we want it for us. Even if we don't speak it even if it's just in our heart, I hope that we can start to remember to check ourselves and say, you know what? That's not, I'm just thinking what that must be like. I don't really know. Secondly, I hope that we're coming out of this, we can define our own lives, the experiences we have, whether they are good or bad, in a different way than we would knee-jerk define our lives. Having money problems? Is your life, does that make your life good or bad? 
Having health issues, does that make your life good or bad? Having relationship struggles, does that make your life good or bad? We have a knee-jerk. Problems equal bad. Struggles equal bad. Danger equals bad. I hope that as we come out of this, maybe we can define our lives a little more healthy than we normally would. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and we're going to see, kind of connecting back to the story we talked about last week, the opportunity that is here. So here's what it says. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for the beautiful virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hege, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let her, that beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice peeled to the king, and he followed it. And so last week, we looked at this idea of how King Xerxes removed Vashti from being queen. And so here we are reminded that Xerxes or Ahasuerus, remember there's some names here. And what, what the NIV does is it takes the name Ahasuerus, which is in the Jewish text there, and replaces it with the historical name Xerxes. They're the same person. It's going to do the same later on with the king of, of Israel. Uh, it's going to say Jehoiakim, and in um, uh, the actual Hebrew text it, text, it says Jeconiah. So they're, they're the same person. They're just assimilating them into some more familiar um, names that are from history, that's all. So we see that Xerxes was upset about that incident, and he remembers it, and that happened, we saw last time, in the third year of his reign. We're going to find out at the end of the story that by the time Esther becomes queen, it's the seventh year of his reign. So that was quite some fit. It took four years for him to get over it, right? But we do find that it took a year at least for this process to happen, probably more. So it probably took a couple years from the time where he removed Vashti from queen. And from history, we know that he went to war with Greece during that time. So it's like this idea, it doesn't say it here, but it's like this idea. He removed Vashti, he went off to war, and when he came home, he was like, that's right, I don't have a queen. And his advisor said, well, let's go find a queen. There's an opportunity. Position for queen is open. And it's a chance for any girl to rise to this position of wealth, advantage. I mean, like anything, the... the, the Palace was anything you could imagine, beautiful, wealthy, ornate, servants and all that stuff, uh, overflowing with riches and gold and, and anything you want at your fingertips. And so this is quite the opportunity. You never have to worry about your next meal. You probably don't have to worry about um, you know, people like uh, getting killed on the street or something like that because you've got guards with you all the time. And so there's this, this sense of this opportunity, this opening, and is. Advisors say, here's what we'll do. Let's do this. Let's gather all the pretty unmarried women and essentially we'll have a beauty contest. We'll have them all go before the king and whoever the king likes, that person can be the queen. It's kind of like uh, we have our own reality show of the bachelor king edition. You know what I mean? Like, you know, who's he going to give the rose to? So he's got all these women and, and they, they gather them up and, and they're going to bring them before the king and we're going to find out what it took to be ready to come before the king as we read the next part of this passage. Sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want to be queen? Well, not so fast. Before we move on, let's, let's acknowledge a couple of things. First of all, 
Um, they were not going to go out to the cities and, and, and towns and ask who wanted to be involved. They were going to go out to the cities and towns and take who they wanted. That's a different deal, isn't it? They were going to go look around and say, you, you're coming with us. You, you're coming with us. There was no argument. There was no debate. There was no question about whether you'd like to come with us or not. It was the king says, you're coming with us. A little bit different, isn't it? And we're going to gather all of them up, and he's going to pick one. What happens to the rest? Not so much fun. And we saw in last chapter that as King Xerxes displayed his wealth and the beauty of his gardens and his palace and all that, he has an eye for beautiful things, right? Now, as we read the next part, I want you to keep in mind, King Xerxes likes beautiful things. And I think what you'll find out is that's exactly what he thought women were, beautiful things. Stuff to be there for his pleasure, for his whims, and to be used and disposed of according to what he wanted. He was an absolute powerful king that used his power to serve his own lusts and desires. And on top of that, what you're going to find is that for the, the heroine of the story, the namesake of the book, there is more to it than just being ripped out of your home and taken to the palace without any vote in the matter and then paraded before the king to find out if he likes you and wants to use you or not. There's more to it than that. So pick up with me at verse 5. We're going to go down to verse 15. And we're going to look kind of at some of the reality here for Esther's life. It says this. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Suda and put under the care of Hege. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hege, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there. In the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shahashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, <coughs> excuse me, Abihel, 
to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hege, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. All right, so now we're introduced to this character, Esther. And we're introduced to Esther through this man, Mordecai. Uh, There's some argument and debate about Mordecai, like uh, he could not possibly have been someone who was taken captive uh, by Nebuchadnezzar because he would be 120 years old by now. And that's true. Uh, But I think that what the Bible is telling us there is that his uh, ancestor Kish was the one taken into captivity in Babylon. And so their, their family has had generations in captivity. Both Mordecai and his cousin Esther, is, uh, they're both Jews. They're part of the people that have been ripped from their homeland, ripped from the tribe of Judah, ripped from the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, which, by the way, is where the name Jew comes from. The name Jew comes from Judah. It's, it's a reference to that southern kingdom, and it started to become popular in this era during the, the, the Babylonian and Persian empires. It started to be assigned to all of Israel, even though it started as a thing referring to Judah and the southern kingdom, because those were the people in these powerful kingdoms, the people that had been deported. And so here's Mordecai, and here's Esther. They are part of a conquered people. They are not living in their homeland. They are not living in a place where they choose. They are living in this land because a stronger army came into their homeland and took them away. I don't know if you can imagine that. I don't know if that even is conceivable to you, that a stronger army in this world would come into our nation and take you from your home and say, this is no longer your home, this is my home. And now you're not going to live here anymore. You're going to be taken back to our capital and you're going to serve our king. You're a slave. Can you imagine that? That's the history of Judah here. That was God's punishment to them, God's discipline on them because they had turned away from him and they were ripped from their land. And so we see a heritage of people who didn't have a say in their life as much as they would like. And they are not home, they are somewhere far away. It's probably less now that we are three or four generations down the line than it was when it first happened, but it seems that there is still a very clear separateness of Native people, Persians, and and, and those kind of people, merchants and Jews, they are a separate people. And that's going to play an important part in the story as we go forward. What it means is that Esther, the heroine of this story, doesn't come from what would have been considered in her context a very good background. Esther's resume, first line, Jew. Yeah, that's a mark against you. Yeah, that's nothing to be proud of. Do you have things in your history, things in your makeup that people would say, yeah, that's nothing to be proud of. That's a mark against you. Anybody have that kind of stuff? Stuff that you inherited or done or where you're from or your education level or your intelligence level or whatever, and you think, well, they're right. That's something that that, that I wish wasn't true about me or whatever. What the story of Esther starts to tell us, and we'll get into this as we go forward, is that your background Your limitations are not limitations to God's work in your life. God is making it very clear that there is a young woman here who is disadvantaged. We're probably talking about a woman who is between 13 and 15 years old. Someone who you would look at and say, she can't make any difference. Besides, she's a Jew. And nobody likes Jews in this land. They're our slaves. They're conquered people. They're the people that we put under our feet. They're nobody. She's a Jew. But she's not just a Jew. She's also an orphan. 
She has lost somewhere along the way both of her parents during her childhood. Young enough that it's been you know, years since that happened, she identifies Mordecai as the one who raises her. And she's young enough when she loses them that she needs someone to raise her. It's not like she's just about finished growing up when they die. She's young enough that Mordecai has to take her and raise her. Anyone here who has lost a loved one knows that that's an unspeakable pain, right? To lose, for her, to lose her mother and her father at a young age. Maybe Esther's life is not so fairy ish Maybe it's not so easy and so wonderful. Her background is not filled with stuff that says, hey, look at this girl, she's a potential queen. It might have said she's a potential slave or she's a potential nobody, but not somebody who's going to make a difference, not someone who's going to matter. And so I would say to you, as we kind of go through this whole story and, and this whole book is written about this person, Esther, I would say, let it be a challenge to you. Do you look at your background and believe what it tells you is possible? based on your background, based on your pains, based on your losses, based on your disadvantages? Does your background tell you what's possible in your life? Do your mistakes doom you because they're not erasable? Do you have to live in guilt and shame? Do you have to live less than? Does your heritage or your economic status define what's possible for you? In the case of Esther... A woman, a Jew, an orphan. She had every reason to believe that life was stacked against her. But I'm grateful that Esther didn't believe what her background said. Esther walked by faith in God's plan. And we'll see that it was his plan for her was not limited at all by her background. I mean, even the fact that Mordecai tells her, don't reveal your identity. Don't reveal your identity. Do you get the sense there when Mordecai forbids her, don't tell them you're a Jew? Do you get the sense of danger there? Like, this is a secret you must keep because your life might be in danger. Actually, it's going to turn out that this thing that was the source of danger is actually the thing that plays into God's work through Esther. But we don't have any reason to know that yet. Maybe one of the things that you're most interested in hiding about your life is the exact thing that when God brings it out into the light is going to be used in the power of God for the greatest good you could ever imagine. Wouldn't that be just like God to do that with the thing that you wish would just go away? And he says, I'm going to do something better than make it go away. I'm going to redeem it. How about that? I'm going to bring it out into the light. See, church should be a place where we can take all that that mess and all that stuff and we can bring it out because we're confident in our Redeemer and our Savior. We don't get that way because we're scared of people, right? We're scared of what people would think of us. But here's the fact. As we hide that stuff away, we don't act in faith. We act like God can't wash it away and God hasn't healed it. And if somebody's got a problem with it, they're wrong. We act like the opposite. We act like they're right and God might not have really washed it away. That's what we act like. And so God, just to like remind us, take some of those things that we, we wish were just buried underground and he pulls them out and you're like, no, God, don't bring that out. And he brings it out and he says, here you go. Now watch this. Watch what I do with what you wish no one knew. Watch. Will you trust me like that? And so Esther's Jewish heritage, don't tell anyone about that. 
And yet God's going to make it a keystone to the way he uses her in her life. And so this is Esther's background. She's got a lot of private pain. Her life has not been a fairy tale. You know, you can like, okay, so like, I got it. It's like a fairy tale, like a Cinderella story, right? Like her life was really hard and then she became princess, queen, whatever. And now everything's good, right? Not so much. She's taken from her home, from her uncle. He is separated from her. He has to walk by uh, the courtyard just to find out how things are going with her. And she's going to be prepared for the king for a year. The next year of her life is going to be all about how she looks for one man, for the king, who gets to choose whether he wants her physically or not for a year. That's the next year of her life. She has no say in it. She's going to be prepared. Now, guys, you thought your wife took a long time getting ready, right? I mean, she didn't have to take a year to get ready. Thankful for that, right? I mean, your wife, if Esther's beautiful and she took a year, your wife only took like an hour. You got a beautiful wife, right? Um, So they're going to prepare them for a year through all of these treatments and whatever. And then they're going to be, here's what's going to happen to them. They're going to be sent to the harem, which is kind of like on-demand sex for the king. The harem, that's what it is, okay? And so they're going to be sent to the harem. Now, what you read as you read about the story is that they, each girl, one at a time, goes to spend a night with the king. What do you think happened in the night with the king? They had a nice conversation? No, this is sexual activity. The king has the right to demand it, and one by one, these girls, without their consent, without any you know, vote in the matter, are brought before this man who is the king and subjected to sexual activity with him and then sent away in the morning. And what the Bible says there and what the history tells us is then they were moved from the harem into this place called the the place of the concubines. These women who have slept with the king now are not eligible for anyone else ever. Huh. And they'll never get back to see the king, not even see his face. It's not like they've started a relationship. They will never see the king again unless the king calls for them by name. You get a little different picture here of what Esther's in for? When someone came by her village and said, you, you're coming with me, you're going to be in the king's harem, I don't think she jumped up and down. I think she was heartbroken because what she knew was coming was that her life was now going to be at the whim of the king. Not exactly a fairy tale. But that's the setup to then what God begins to do. And we're told here that as Esther goes through this process, she wins the favor of everyone who sees her. She wins their favor. And that detail, as that's included, is is meant to give us a sense of God at work here. Right? Why? Why does she win the favor? I'm sure she was a pleasant girl. The Bible tells us she was a beautiful girl. But I'm sure she had wisdom. She had humility. Um, she was very receptive to Mordecai's advice in her life. It tells us when he gave, uh, wanted to, when she wanted to go in, she went to the, the eunuch he gave and said, tell me what to take. And whatever he said, she took. So there's some humility there, right? There's some wisdom there. There's some grace there. All good stuff. I'm sure that had a lot to do with the fact that she was a, an easy person to get along with. But the story is not saying she was a nice person. That's why she won their favor. What the story is telling us is that God was moving here. God's hand is at work 
Because the king who's going to make this decision is not trying to do the right thing. Have you picked up on that yet? The king is not about, oh, heavenly father, oh, God almighty, show me the right way to go and I'll go with it. The king is about, what do I want? And I'll take whatever I want and use it for myself. That's what the king's about. And so winning the favor of everyone and eventually winning the favor of the king is really supposed to point to the hand of God. That God is at work in spite of the one who is humanly in power. God is at work. And he's at work in this subtlety of people liking her. It has been said that the most powerful prison you will ever find yourself in is the prison of being driven by what people think of you. Could it be that what people think of you is about what God is doing and not about them and you at all? That someone maybe who once liked you and now doesn't is really just about God moving people in and out of your life according to his plan? Could it be? Is that possible? Could it be it's not a statement about your value or your worth or your attractiveness or your likability? Could it be? Could it be that you would be set free from the chains that say you need to let, make everybody like you. You need to have a radar up for what everybody thinks about you to find out if you're valuable or not. Maybe that's a lose-lose proposition. Maybe you're looking in the wrong place because here what we see in Esther is people liked her, not because of her, but because of what God was doing in her life. And so that suggests that maybe the opposite is also true. That maybe when God needs to move someone on for your life because he's different plans for you and for them, maybe that, that, that thing that was so warm breaks apart a little bit. Now, I'm not saying we're not jerks to each other and there's times where we're upset. And we, I'm not saying there's not cause sometimes. But I am saying that sometimes we get so obsessed with what people think about us instead of obsessed with the fact that God is unfolding his plan in our lives. And maybe whether someone likes you or not, whether someone is close to you or not, has nothing to do with you. It has to do with God's plan in your life. And so if someone who's close to you drifts away, okay, can I by faith take what God's doing? Some people I don't even know show up in my life. Can I take by faith what God is doing? Can I follow his plan? That works itself out oftentimes in relationships. And so here's Esther finding favor with everyone. And now finish it out with me, verse 16 down to verse 20. Here's what it says. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any, other, any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do so, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done while he was bringing her up. So Esther is made queen, and that's like this triumphant flourish to the story. She wins the beauty contest. She wins the bachelor. She's the one that goes home with it, and she's going to be the queen, and he sets a crown on her head, and he throws a banquet. As we've seen in this story, it is an unlikely tale of a rise to a position of importance. It reminds me a lot about Joseph 
in the Old Testament. Someone who was a Jew who was ripped from his homeland and he was in a jail. He was a slave that was in jail and rose to second in power, this influential position, had the king's ear, Pharaoh's ear. And so here we have Esther, some nobody, ripped from her home, taken to the king's harem, and because of God's work, rises to this place of influence. What's the point? What's the point of this story? And and I hope that you get this. The point of the story is not, was Esther's life better off being queen or not? Was she better off as a queen or better off just at home with Mordecai? What was she better off with? Was, was, was Esther taking a step up in this life? Was that, you know, isn't this something that, that was a wonderful thing for her? That's not the point. The point of this is not whether it was easier or more pleasant for Esther as queen than as a regular Jewish girl. The reality is in both lives there were dangers, there were challenges, there were losses. Looking from the outside in, we would go, wow, what a blessing. I think if you had a little interview with Esther, she would have said, Wow, what a burden. What's good is not defined by whether it is easy or pleasant, whether outside looking in it looks like an opportunity or, or some advantage. What defines good or bad in our lives is whether God is at work or not. The reason that being queen was a great position for Esther was because God was going to use it for his plan to unfold in her life. And so Esther didn't have to say, do I like this better or this better? She just had to say, God, where do you want me? God has a plan to use you for eternal things. And God is in the business of moving you from them. Sometimes it will feel like you've gone from a place of advantage to a place of disadvantage. From a place of pleasantness to a place of unpleasantness. Will you evaluate that move by how it feels to you in this life? Or will you, by faith, say, God, if you're moving me there, it must be good, even if it's hard, even if it's painful, even if it's bad? Do you see? We so quickly define our lives by the physical or the political or the relational or the economic or whatever circumstance. We define our lives by those things that we see. Esther here steps forward. She has no idea why being a queen is something God would do in her life, but she just goes forward by faith because she's listening to the one that God gave her to listen to, Mordecai. And her plan begins to unfold in a way that she could not even imagine. And it actually gets worse, a lot worse, before it gets any better at all. Can you wait in the unpleasantness, by faith, for God to unfold a plan that is way better than you could imagine. But it's going to take waiting in the unpleasantness, waiting in the pain. Can you take that? Because here's the deal. God uses this young girl to save all the Jews. And, by the way, we're still here 2,500 years later looking at what God did in Esther's life and being taught by it. Could it be that God's plan for what he's doing in your life won't unfold till long after you're gone? Are you all right with that? See, if I'm linked to, I'm bound to, I've got to see it in order to understand it, in order for me to believe that it's good, in order for me to walk by faith in it, then some of the things God wants to do in your life will never happen. Because you're going to keep going, show me, show me, and God's going to go, you're not going to be around to see it. Just believe me, just trust me. Do we have faith like that? 
that says, God, I just want to know your way because your plan is right. If we insist on always seeing how this makes sense, how this works for good, you're going to be stuck. But if by faith we stop checking on whether we think our lives are, are fair or comfortable or enjoyable and we just start saying to God, God, I want to live with that abandon. I want to live wherever you take me. I want to go wherever you take me. I want to do whatever you want me to do because I want your work in me. You will have the opportunity and the promise of God that he will unleash a purpose and a power in your life beyond your imagination. You up for that? It frees us from evaluating our lives and, and you know, what, does, what do I think about this? Do I like this? Do I not like this? Does this benefit me? Does this not benefit me? It frees us from evaluating our lives. It frees us to pursue and seek the Lord with passion so that wherever you go, whether there are great, wonderful physical blessings or dangers, whether it's easy or tense, whether it's fair or unfair, all Situations in my life that I walk into by faith are an opportunity from God and for God. Believe that? So let's ask a few questions as we get ourselves ready towards communion here. Maybe today you identify with Esther because people from the outside looking in would say, man, you've got a great life, but you've got hidden burdens that no one else knows about. And today is a day to recognize that God can use a life that's filled with burdens. God can carry you through them. Maybe you, you look at others and are tempted to envy their life. Hopefully today is a reminder that's a useless endeavor because you don't even know what their life is like. How are you defining the situations of your life? Is it your calling? Is it, this is my opportunity to serve the Lord? Or is it your misery? Is it an opportunity from God or is it a pointless bitterness? Will you choose to see life through the lens of God's plan, whether it makes you feel better or whether it makes you feel worse? Will you choose to see your life through God's plan and will you trust God to take you the right way, even if it isn't the easy way or the comfortable way, because God's plan is amazing? I pray that we will surrender like that today. And I can think of no better way to bring that to a close than to celebrate communion together. So we're going to observe that this morning. I'm going to ask you to leave your stuff where it is and make a circle around the room as we prepare to celebrate communion together. All right, so we're going to start with passing cups around. Please take a cup if you're going to participate today. And like I said before, if you don't want to, just let it go by. And uh, that will be a very clear sign to us of what God's going to do, what what you're interested in doing today. Um, as I think about this, the symbols that we're about to partake, I think about the example we have of exactly what we talked about today in our Lord. Um, there's a very famous passage in Jesus' suffering that you all know really well, so I just want to read it to you. And I want to see if, if this connects the dots a little bit for you about how even our Lord had to decide to trust that the pain and the unpleasant was, was part of a plan that God was going to use for a greater good. If Jesus had to do that, maybe it makes you a little bit more encouraged that he can show us how to do it. Here's what it says uh, in Luke 22, verse 40. It says, On reaching the place, he said to his disciples, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing 
take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You remember that scene in the story of our Lord? What's he saying? He's saying the same thing we talked about this morning. Father, this coming, this cup that you put in front of me, it is painful. Take it from me, please. But if it's your will, I will drink it. Because I believe, because I trust your plan for me. And I don't know if you, you registered with what happened after that. An angel from heaven comes and ministers to him. Did you pick up on that? God said, hey, I'm not taking the cup away from you, but I care the strain that this is putting on you. I'm going to minister to you in this moment, not to rescue you from the pain, but to carry you through it so that my plan will be accomplished. And what was accomplished through the pain of our Lord? Salvation, life, forgiveness, hope. His suffering brings me life. And so today we remember the suffering of our Lord and we we are invited to follow Him by faith. Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. As the men come around today, you'll have to rip a piece off. And as you feel that rip, Jesus' words ring in your head, this is my body broken for you. As the juice comes around, they will pour it into your cup. And as you feel that juice being poured, remember the words of Jesus, this is my blood poured out for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Gentlemen, to the victory of our Lord, his body, his blood for us in remembrance of him. Let's close this morning and where a prayer will be on our way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such powerful reminder that it is the blood of Jesus that washes us that it is his sacrifice, his willingness to walk the painful path, the hard path that flowered into the work that you have done in the lives of every person who has trusted you, the miracle of new birth, of forgiveness, of life everlasting. Father, today we are grateful for that example. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in his steps that we would follow that example, that we would walk wherever you lead us, that we would by faith want your plan for our lives to unfold. We would not evaluate our lives by the easy or the hard, but by faith we would trust that as we follow you, you will do exactly what our purpose, what our meaning, what our life is all about. So we give ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless.